I was just struck while we were singing how in that moment, I, I actually felt a greater increase of love for you as a church. I'm a sinful, broken man, and yet God has given me a love for the people of this church. And the best way I know how to show you that love and to show you that I care is by simply giving to you the word of God as he has set it forth. There's nothing greater I can give to you. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to do so. Now, I have a few things on my mind before I get into the preaching of the word of God. But if you want to, you can already turn, take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. And today I want to address what I've entitled the issue of the heart, and you'll see where I'm going in a minute. But before I get there, go ahead and open your Bibles. I just want to say this before we get into it. Um, first of all, over the last several weeks, we received a number of, of recommendations for elders, which we have asked you for. Thank you for that. And I want to continue to, to invite you to do that. If you see someone who you know fits the biblical qualifications of an elder, would you continue to recommend them? There are some requirements, however. They must be a member. And if you know someone who really has the calling of an elder and the qualifications of an elder, and they're not a member, would you encourage them to become one? Thank you. Thank you. Furthermore, for those of you who find the online application uh, difficult to do, it's not your cup of tea. You don't have the ability to do that. Um, you can do two things. You can either call Natalie or meet her at her office, and she will help it and fill it out for you, or we will also be, pro be providing a paper um, copy of it at our front desk. And so look for those to arrive there, and you can do it that way as well. But as I now turn towards the sermon and the passage that I'm going to preach on today, there's one more encouragement or an invitation maybe that I would like to give. If you've been attending um, for the last several months and so you're still new here and you're beginning to feel like maybe this is where the Lord would have us, um, if you haven't already done so, I would encourage you to consider also supporting us financially. And here's why. Because even as you'll hear the sermon today, and then this came to me because of what I'm preaching on today, people will sense that uh, maybe I need help in this area. And one of the ways that we have elders believe that the Lord is able to help the elders better care for the people of this church is by implementing our soul care ministry. Cody Unger is our soul care director. Cody, you're over there. Just put up your hand if you can see him. That's Cody. And Cody is providing a very necessary and meaningful service. That's a great benefit to myself as a pastor and to our elders. And we would love to see him come on full time. And messages such as today might be an area where Cody might get more calls. And so we would love to be able to provide him the ability with more time to be able to come alongside the elders and to care for the flock. And so if you haven't done so already, for those of you that are, thank you for your support. And for those of you who feel that maybe this is where the Lord is calling us, 
could I invite you to consider giving as well? And I say that because of particularly of where I'm going today in the Gospel of Mark. You see, when we, we put ourselves under the Word of God, the Word of God is, it, it, sometimes it's like a health diagnosis, and it reveals issues within our lives that we maybe didn't see or were aware of before. And then the Word of God transforms into the surgeon's scalpel, which cuts deep, and it hurts, and it can even leave scars. But it does so in order to remove what's ailing or even killing us on the inside so that it might restore us to health and spiritual vitality. And so my prayer is that today we would yield ourselves to God's word and embrace the cutting of the word of God for our good and ultimately for his glory. Today's passage leads us head on into a subject of divorce and remarriage, but primarily the focus is on divorce. And today you might feel like the word of God is cutting deep because I don't know where you find yourself in this situation. But here's what I want you to know. As the word of God cuts, God will bring about healing. And so my encouragement is that we would allow the word of God to do that. And even if we don't want it, if the Lord says it's time, he'll do it. Because he is sovereign over all. Now, for those not married, I believe that this sermon will be just as helpful for you because what we're going to look at today is an issue of the heart. And so regardless if you're married or single, this will speak to the issues of your own heart and allow you to assess your own relationships with people. And so as we look at this passage, we need to stop and we need to ask the Father to reveal to us our own hearts. Would you pray with me? Lord, right now in this moment, as we look at this passage, I pray that your word would do what you sent it forth to do. But I pray, Lord, that we would bow before you and we would say, have your will and have your way in my heart and in my life. Speak to us this morning, Lord. Do your spiritual surgery within us. In Jesus' name, amen. Starting at Mark chapter 10. I want to read for you first the first four verses of this passage. And it begins this way. And he left there and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. That would be the area of Perea and so on. Continuing on the passage. And crowds gathered to him again and again. As was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he, that's Jesus, answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So let's just pause there while I set the stage for us. Now, Jesus has spent the majority of his time in his home province of Galilee, where he's been teaching people, but he's now done spending his time in Galilee, and he's now beginning to move southward towards Judea, and of course, that's the home province of the city of Jerusalem. 
And he is now teaching his disciples and those who were following them in this region. Now the Pharisees know that Jesus is in the area and they've once again come to test him. Now we understand that this is not a testing to see what he knows or to affirm that he is who Jesus says he is. This is an attempt to entrap him, if you will, in order to discredit who he says he is because, you see, they hate him. They want him dead. And they're doing whatever they can to find a way that will incriminate him, entrap him, and that allow them to get rid of him. And so they've come to test him or to entrap him, if you will. And we saw this previously in Mark chapter 8, verse 11, when they asked him for a sign from heaven, and that test failed for them. Now they've come again, but this time they've come with a theological matter that no matter how he answers, it'll turn the people against him. At least this is their hope. And hopefully this will incriminate him. And so they've chosen a topic that hits home with people, which they hope will work in their favor. This is very manipulative on the Pharisees' part. And the topic they have chosen is the topic of divorce. The truth is, they don't care what he thought about this topic. They're just looking for something they can use to turn the people against him. So that they could use it to do away with them. So they, they, how can they, how could they use the topic of divorce to trap Jesus? There are two ways that we know that seem to fit. So I'm going to share both of these with you. First one. You see, in Israel, there were two primary views regarding divorce. There was a very liberal view and a very conservative view, and I'll get into that a little later on. But regardless of which one Jesus would affirm, they were going to use it to turn the people who held the opposing view against him. They didn't care if it led to a riot or whatnot, as long as as it would discredit Jesus and turn the people against him. That's the first way they're going to they're use either the liberal view or the conservative view of divorce. Second way they're hoping this might go. You see, Jairus, oh, sorry, Jesus is in the area of Judea. Herod Antipas is the one who's ruling over Judea at the time. Herod Antipas is the one who had John the Baptist beheaded for telling Herod that it was unlawful for him to have his brother's wife, whom he had married. And so, if Jesus held the conservative view, or the view of John the Baptist, if you will, they could get word across to Herod, and perhaps the same fate would befall Jesus that had befallen on John the Baptist, in which he was beheaded. And to me and to many others, this seems more likely what they were trying to achieve because they wanted him dead. And in their attempt to destroy Jesus, asking about divorce, 
we learn how God or what God's intention is, not just about divorce, but marriage. And so the stage is set. And they ask the question that they hope will be the demise of Jesus. And I have to say they chose a pretty good question because this is a subject that so many of us, if not all of us, can identify with or have experienced in some degree, not personally, but with loved ones around us. And so we know even among us there are conflicting views on this topic. This is a topic that has the potential to divide even churches and to set Christians against one another. So it's a very highly emotional and contentious subject. So they think that we've got this. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? They've launched their missile. And now they're waiting for the explosion. They're waiting for it to hit. And what Jesus does is Jesus raises the bar, revealing a high and holy view of divorce and marriage. And the first thing I want us to see from Jesus' response is that divorce reveals an issue with the heart. So Jesus, in his wisdom, responds by, ask, by asking them this. Well, what did Moses command you? So what Jesus does, he goes straight to the word of God. And in verses 4 and 5, we read the Pharisees' response. They said, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, listen, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Now, listen again to the way the Pharisees summarized the commandment of Moses. Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. That's a neat little package that they've created. But now let's, let me take you back to Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, where Moses actually addresses this very commandment that they've just referred to, where we read this. this listen carefully. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then... She finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hands and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, that's the first guy, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife, and she has been defiled. Sorry, after she's been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Okay. <laughs> there was a lot in there, wasn't there? But I hope you caught something here, and that, that is this, that if you read this clearly, you will actually understand that Moses is actually not advocating for divorce. That's the reality. But they have summarized this 
in a neat little package. Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now, the issue within this commandment and how they've summarized it, they've kind of cut everything else off and they've left everything to one or contained it to one little commandment and particularly a part of the phrase within the commandment. Here's what they said, or here's what Moses said. If then she finds no favor in his eyes, that's her original first husband, because he has found some indecency in her. That little phrase right there, if he has found some indecency in her, that, that is the key phrase that they focused on. And the way they interpreted the word indecency led to two very different interpretations. Very different applications. So I'm not going to pack that passage out of Deuteronomy as to what Moses is really getting at, but I want to focus on what they're twisting here and how they interpreted this. There were two views as to how to interpret that little phrase if he found some indecency in her. There was one rabbi, his name was Shammai, he was a conservative rabbi, and he interpreted this phrase to, to refer to some sort of shameful act of infidelity, right? Some sort of sexual sin, if you will. And Shammai said anything less than that was not to be considered grounds for divorce. Let me just put this plug in there already. I, I, I'm convinced that even that conservative interpretation is wrong. Because they already had a law for infidelity. And it was death. Clearly stated in the book of Deuteronomy. So I don't think that is the proper interpretation. However, that was the conservative interpretation. Then there was another rabbi by the name of Hillel, and here was his interpretation. He, he interpreted to refer to some sort of shameful act, or sorry, sorry, that was Shammai. He interpreted it to mean anything that she did that displeased him. Think of that. Anything at all that she did that displeased him was grounds for divorce. And so I did some digging. And I'm trying to find out what, were, what would qualify in Hillel's interpretation of this commandment to be grounds for divorce. Let me share just a few of them with you. If she embarrassed him, divorce. If she burnt his meal, divorce. How many guys would be like, hey? I am setting myself up for job dismissal after that. No, but in all seriousness, think of the ladies in the situation. If she spoke too loudly, it was grounds for divorce. This is Hillel's interpretation. If she showed her ankles in public, it was grounds for divorce. 
if she spoke poorly of his mother, it was grounds for divorce. If he found another woman more attractive than her, it was grounds for divorce. And these are just a few, just a few of the examples of what qualified under Halal's interpretation of grounds for divorce, the way he interpreted that little phrase, if he finds some indecency in her. And sadly, I would make the argument that I believe that this is very much what we see practiced today. And this was the primary accepted interpretation in the day of Israel. Now, if you understand anything at all about those days, you would also understand that in those days, women did not have the rights that men did. In fact, they were often treated and understood to be more as the property of the husband than an equal. And so although we kind of laugh and joke about some of these things, the reality is it was devastating. Truly, truly devastating. Their interpretation of Moses' commandment was, if your wife did anything at all that you found displeasing, anything at all, all you had to do was to get a certificate of divorce and it was over. And you could get it on the same day. But the intent of this commandment was never to endorse or make divorce easy. It was actually intended to protect women who had no rights in a patriarchal society. By this commandment, it would allow her to retain the dowry that had been paid to her husband when they got married. So he'd have to give the dowry back to her, which would then give her something to live off. Of, And that certificate would then give her the legal right to remarry again. Because it was very hard for a woman to make it on her own in that day. The liberal interpretation of this commandment allowed them to quickly and easily get the certificate of divorce. All the man had to do was show why she displeased him. That is nasty. That just, to me, seems like such an injustice. But then Jesus reveals the ugly truth. Referring back to this commandment written by Moses in Deuteronomy 24, he says, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. What Jesus is actually pointing out is, guys, this is not a good thing. What is revealed here, the reason Moses gave it to you is because your hearts are hard. And I think it's right to conclude the reason for the percentage of divorce we have today, even among us, even among those of us who call ourselves Christians many times, is because of our own hard hearts. What constitutes a hard heart? A hard heart is a heart that's closed to elements such as forgiveness, compassion, reconciliation, 
A hard heart is a heart that cares more about what I want than about what God wants or my spouse wants. It's me first. Tell me, is that not the predominant attitude in our society today? Me first. What I want. It's about me. Well, the word of God tells us that is a hard heart. It can also include elements such as bitterness and resentment and selfishness and narcissism. But in the end, I believe the ultimate issue of a hard heart is caring more about myself than about the will of God and about the person I'm married to. So divorce is an issue of the heart. The second thing that Jesus points out is that divorce is actually contrary to God's design. Look at verses 6 through 9. But from the beginning of creation, this is Jesus speaking, God made them male and female, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Okay, so I'm just going to quickly jump into something here that's not even in my notes But I just want to draw your attention just briefly to that last statement. Jesus said, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Let me just kind of clear the weeds, if you will. When we separate what God has joined together, what we're doing is we're elevating ourselves to God's standard. That's what we're doing. Because my will is more important than God's will. My way is more important than your way. So we're elevating ourselves and we're lowering God. Now, backing up to the rest of that, Jesus says, from the beginning, God made them male and female. So let me explain to you what what Jesus meant by this verse. And here's what it means. God made them male and female. The man is to leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. There it is. Simple as that. Part of the idea of holding fast is doing whatever it takes to guard your commitment to each other. Fighting for that covenant because you've entered into a covenant. Not just a commitment, not just an agreement. It's a covenant. And in the Old Testament, when a covenant was made, the, the price for breaking a covenant was death. And so here again, the idea of holding fast is doing whatever it takes. You fight as hard as you have to to guard that commitment that you have with each other. God's plan includes that the two shall become one flesh. And this is always a really interesting and unique phrase. What does it even mean to be one flesh? And I think there's far more to it than what I'm about to say, but let this be the starting point anyway. The, the statement of one flesh, I believe, is the uniting of two people into one new God-designed, God-purposed life. It's not you have your will, you have your will, do what you want. And we're just living or cohabitating together. No. Your life plans become one. 
God, God takes two people, joins them together intimately, emotionally, mentally, and in purpose, creating one life using two personalities and, char- and the characteristics of both people, husband and one, husband and wife. Think of this. We all know those couples where the one reminds you of the other and vice versa. If you talk to the wife, you can just see the, the, the husband. And when you talk to the husband, you can just hear the wife. They just become so much one that you can't picture one without the other. You can't hear one without hearing the other. They just become so intimate, so close as one. We all know people like that. And I think that's a part of what happens when they become one and they work to keep that covenant that they've entered into and God blesses that union and over time they are reflected in each other. Uniquely different in character, uniquely different in personality and yet they become so intimately united that they're so intertwined that you can't separate them. This one flesh wording expresses God's intention of a relationship between a man and a woman till death separates them. That is what Jesus says is God's plan. Through this covenant, now listen, Here's where I think we need to pay attention to this. Through this covenant of marriage, when you covenant to each other for life till death do you part, the beauty of love, commitment, and faithfulness are expressed. And now listen, follow me on this trail. God's plan was that when a married couple lives fighting for each other and expressing these attributes, if you will, of faithfulness and commitment and compassion for one another, what you're doing is you're expressing the character of God. That's what you're doing. That's what you're revealing. This was and is God's plan. Now, follow follow me. Israel had been set aside by God as his peculiar or his holy people to be the people of God so that in order they would reflect the character of God to the rest of the world around them. And a covenant marriage, a covenant relationship between one man and one woman would be one of the ways in which the faithfulness, the love, the compassion and the commitment of God would be revealed to the rest of the world. So as the other societies around them are divorcing and remarrying, having multiple wives, people would look in on the people in Israel and go, what's this deal with you guys? Like just one wife and one husband till death do you part? Like, and that was the opportunity to point them to God and say, We do this because it's a reflection of our God. That's what he is like. So you see, marriages were the door of witnessing to society around them. 
And it reflected how God remains faithful to the very end. But the sad, the sad part of the story is that Israel had lost their testimony. They had lost the glory of God. When the rest of the world looked in on Israel, they were not in awe of the God of Israel. They were divorcing and remarrying, having multiple wives, and it was just a circus of brokenness and sin. Israel was not a reflection of the love, the compassion, the faithfulness, or the holiness of a covenant-keeping God. Their hearts had become hard and their testimony lost. And I hope you can get this out of what I've just said here. Brothers and sisters, even for you and for me, our marriages are not merely for our personal benefit. Do you understand that? Marriage is not for the sake that you can have someone else to do things for you, to meet your needs, to fulfill you, to give you children, to give you a better future. That is, those things are not the ultimate purpose of marriage. It's not. The ultimate purpose of marriage, of our marriages, are for the purpose of testifying to the world of the gracious compassion of our covenant-keeping God. I thought about this, and even in my own life, and though my wife and I have counseled many people in their marriage, my wife and I have done a lot of premarital counseling, but one of the things that I thought about as I was working this through in my own life was when was the last time that I sat down with my wife and asked, how can we better reveal God's character through our marriage? Can I ask you the same question this morning? When was the last time you sat down with your spouse and you asked the question, how can you and I, in our marriage, better reflect the gracious, loving compassion of our covenant-keeping God? As I thought about that, there was, a, there was something that struck me, and it was this. A hard heart will not ask that question because a hard heart wants what it wants, not what God wants. Can I ask, where's your heart this morning? Where's your heart? God, do a work within us this morning. Break us where we need to be broken, cut where we need to be cut. Do a healing work within us, oh God. But Jesus isn't done yet. He's not done. He raises the bar again. And he makes things even more uncomfortable. The third point, and it might sound a little obscure, but the third point is this. 
Jesus points out that divorce may lead to adultery. Now that might sound weird, but just follow me on this. Look at verses 10, 11, and 12. And in the house, so now Jesus has dealt with the Pharisees. and like, that didn't go as planned. So they're gone. But now his disciples are like, Jesus, like, what was that all about? Because you see, even his own disciples had embraced and believed the liberal interpretation of this commandment. And I'll show you, I'll prove that to you a little later on here. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, listen, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Did you hear that? Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits, commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So you see, whereas divorce is not in and of itself adultery, what is plain in this passage from what Jesus says, listen, remarrying after divorce is adultery. This is heavy. That's what the word of God says. This is uncomfortable. This hits like a ton of bricks. And it should. And, and I know there are people in this room who've been divorced and remarried. But I would encourage you, just hold on, hold on. Don't walk out. Let's continue to walk through this. But this is heavy. And you know what? It should be. Because what we're experiencing in this moment, we're experiencing God's high and holy standard for marriage. If you're feeling that right now, this is very uncomfortable and very awkward. It's because the Lord is revealing to us, here's my standard. And society today has got it down here. We should feel the weight of that. It should make us uncomfortable. Now, even Jesus' own disciples felt the weight of this statement. How do I know that? Well, if you were to look at Matthew's account of the same story, we read in Matthew 19, verse 10, after Jesus made that statement, so just hold on and hear me out. I know you, you, maybe some of you are ready to tune me out, but just bear with me. Hold on till the end. His disciples felt the weight of the statement in, in Matthew's account of the same story. After Jesus said that, here's the response from his own disciples in Matthew 19.10. The disciples said to him, well, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Like, whoa. Jesus, if that's true, if what you're saying is true, this is his own disciples then it's better not to marry. Ouch. Ouch, because the disciples are like, oh, we're feeling this. Well, hold on. Matthew's gospel also shares a caveat or clarification that we don't see in Mark. 
In verse 9 of Matthew 19, we read this. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. I don't know why Mark misses that or doesn't say that. I don't know. I still haven't figured out, even trying to figure it out all week. But in Matthew's account of the same story, Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And so here is this, what we would refer to as the exception clause, right? So if you will, uh, we would put it this way, that, that marrying someone after you've been divorced doesn't necessarily always qualify as adultery. And I know, even in this room today, there are people who will send me emails afterwards saying, that's the wrong interpretation. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. But I don't know how to get around that caveat. But I hope for those of you that maybe this might give you some degree of encouragement. But this begs a lot of questions. Like, with all that we've heard here now, like, our minds are just running out of control and we have a lot of questions. And the reality is, sadly, that in this 40-minute sermon, there isn't sufficient time to address the entire matter of this subject. But I'll try to give some direction and encouragement as we wrap this up. But here are the three things that this passage makes clear from Jesus himself. Number one, divorce reveals an issue with the heart. Number two, divorce is contrary to God's will. And number three, divorce may lead to adultery. So what do we do in light of this? Because, you know, there are, there are dear, sweet people in this room that love Jesus passionately, that have been divorced and remarried. There are some in this room who right now, whose marriages are in shambles, and they're looking at moving on to others. What should we do? This is, after this, what do we do? What do we do? And I will try my best to give what I hope is most biblical direction. And I would ask your forgiveness if it's not. So let me start with this. If you have been divorced and remarried, and although this sermon hasn't taken into account at all of the situations that you experienced that led to your divorce and your remarriage, so there's a lot that's not addressed here, so let's acknowledge that. But here would be my encouragement because I've had this before where someone came to me and said, I read this, I've been divorced and remarried. What do I do now? Because I feel guilt and condemnation. Am I living in perpetual sin? Here's my encouragement. Number one, find your refuge in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the truth is every one of us is sinful, and every one of us is a sinner. And so we like to kind of categorize some of these sins, but the reality is in 1 Peter 3.18, we're told that Christ died for sins once for all, meaning for all our sins at one time. And so my encouragement to you is if, if you find yourself in this situation, Find your refuge in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus has paid for your sins. Number two, 
And, and I'm speaking first to those who find themselves particularly in the situation, but as this opens up, I want everyone to be fed into this. Number two, remain in your present marriage. Now, there are, there are exceptions. If there's abuse or desertion, these are some things that we consider as well. Uh, it may not be best, especially abuse. It's not wise to stay there. If you are experiencing something like that, come and speak to one of our counselors, Cody, or come and reach out to our elders because that is dishonoring to God and we need to get you out of a situation like that. But if that is not the case, that we would encourage you to remain in your present marriage because going back to your first spouse, according to Deuteronomy 24, is an abomination. So stay where you are. Remain in your present marriage. Thirdly, and this is for whether you're single or married or divorced and single, doesn't matter. Be an advocate for God's will for marriage. <laughs> You're like, but wait a minute, I don't have a right to because I've messed my life up. I've been married and divorced several times over. I, I, I can't be an advocate because I've just messed it up so much. Well, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. Do you remember the Apostle Paul who once was Saul, who was a man who persecuted the church to death? Remember him? Well, he became one of the church's greatest advocates, the very church that he'd been persecuting. So yes, you can become an advocate for God's will and design for marriage. Even if that's not exactly true in your situation that, oh, this is, is my first marriage or what have you, or I'm divorced, you can still be an advocate for God's will for marriage. And in that, I would say, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. So be an advocate for God's will for marriage. Fourthly, guard against a hard heart. Man, this just happens so easily. Right? We don't even notice it. Someone says something that hurts us and we don't deal with it and it lingers and it festers and it turns into bitterness and it turns into hardness, right? And that ha can happen between spouses and it, can, it just ruins relationships. So whether you're married or you're single, we all need to guard against a hard heart. So the question is, how do I, how do I prevent or how do I guard against a hard heart? And I was thinking about this because we need real answers to this, right? And I, I think this is how I would go about it. Number one, abide in Christ. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is keep in close communion with Jesus. That's what we need. We need to keep in close communion with Jesus. I think that may be one of the greatest downfalls for all of us is that we don't keep in close communion with Jesus, but that's what we need to do. Secondly, adding to that, yield to his will. Lord, here's what my heart desires, but I see what your will is. Help me, Lord, to live according to your will. And then thirdly, keep his commandments. And fourthly, repent of any ungodliness in your life. Guard your heart. 
Guard your heart. Cody did a sermon series on it last summer about guarding your heart. I would encourage you to go back and listen to those two sermons again. And fifthly, live for the glory of God. And I mean not just wishy-washy, oh yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. I mean intentionally live for the glory of God. You see, the ultimate purpose of marriage, as I've already stated, is to showcase the splendor and the beauty and the character of God. That's the ultimate purpose in marriage. Jesus is the bridegroom. The church is his bride, and, and you can take your model from him. Jesus loves his bride even when she's unfaithful. He loves his bride even when she's sinned against him. He loves his bride even when she fails to meet his standard. He loves his bride to the point that he laid down his life for her. Because you see, all of this is a matter of the heart. Divorce is a matter of the heart. Fighting to keep your covenant in marriage is a matter of the heart. Living for the will of God within your marriage is a matter of the heart. And the only way we can keep from becoming a hard heart is through the power of the gospel as we abide in Jesus. And if you find this morning, well, the signs are there, the evidence is there that I have a hard heart. The way to be set free from a hard heart is by the power of the gospel, which sets us free. So my encouragement to you this morning would be to call upon the name of Jesus and to repent from sin, which means to walk away from sin and then live for the glory of God. This is not something to be trifled with. God has a high and holy view of marriage. Malachi tells us he hates divorce because of what it does to people and how it robs him of revealing his character through us. So let me just encourage you. Would you abide in Jesus? Would you strive towards abiding in him? so that his character would be made known through our relationships, whether it's in our marriages or outside of marriages, the relationship we have other people, with other people, so that they can see the beauty, the splendor, and the glory of God. Would you pray with me? Lord, this is a weighty sermon. Lord, your word is weighty. Your word is truth. And Lord, this morning, I, I beg, Lord, I beg, Father, for my own heart and for everyone else in here, would you keep us from becoming hard? I pray, Lord, that if there are people in here today who, who realize and recognize that I do have a hard heart, would you set them free this morning? Give them the power to overcome Lord, show us, show us that living for our own desires is a hard heart. For desires that go contrary to your character, oh God. Humble us, Lord. 
pray, Lord, that we would be filled with repentance and humility. I pray, Lord, that when we look at our spouse, we would realize that here is a person that you have joined me to through which you desire your character to be made known to the world around us. Lord, we need your spirit to do a work in our hearts this morning. This isn't just for the marriages that are falling apart. This is for those who think they have a good marriage, but it hasn't been one that really glorifies God. This isn't just for those marriages, Lord. This is for people outside of marriage as they assess their own hearts, whether they have a hard heart or a heart that's set on the things of Christ. So, Lord, none of us are exempt this morning, married or not. Lord, I pray for grace this morning for those who feel convicted and condemned because maybe they've been divorced and remarried. I pray, Lord, that they would find your gospel to be sufficient because you have borne all of our sins. But now, Lord, in their relationships right now, I pray that you would be glorified, that much would be made of you. Help us, O Lord. Do not allow us to stay the same after hearing this, Lord. Cut deep where it needs to cut. I pray, Lord, for humility that we would be humble. Change us, O Lord. Do not allow us to approach the doors of eternity without our hearts being changed, Lord. If any of you would like to speak afterwards or would like prayer, myself and some of the elders will be around and up here, or you can reach out to someone who you know and you trust that loves Jesus, and they'll pray with you as well. Can I just plead with you this day? not walk out with a hard heart. Let's confess our sins to God. Turn from sin and abide in Christ so that he might be glorified through us. For he is worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy. There's a great gap between what our heart desires and what the will of God is. But Jesus made a way so that we could live for the glory of God. Help us to do that now, O oh Lord. Change our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.